Welcome everyone back to the Borders Book Club or welcome to the first time if you're just joining us. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us again this evening. Um, hope you've all had a nice couple of weeks since we last saw each other. Um, so obviously this evening we're talking about The Fig Tree and we're joined by Olivia Hallowell and Susan Curtis from Istros Books. So I'm really excited to introduce them in just a moment. We have a really wonderful book this evening. I really love this book and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all thought about it and talking to Olivia and Susan about it. So um, I'll introduce Susan first. Um, those of you who have been to previous meetings with Istros will have, this will be a familiar face, but uh, uh, hi Susan, thanks for joining us. Do you want to just um, sort of um, tell us a bit about Istros and a bit about um, the fig tree? Yes, um, so um, I'm going to be repeating myself to people who've been here before and with us when we did Wild Woman, for example, in the summer. But Istros Books was founded in uh, 2011 and it's focused on the literature and culture of Southeast Europe and the Balkans. And uh, I publish around six or seven titles a year. And often these titles now at this point uh, are done in cooperation with publishing houses from countries in the region. So I've had um, a bilateral project with Croatia for the last three years and I've had now a bilateral project with Slovenia for about five years and The Fig Tree is one of those books. So back in 2015 I published uh, Goran Vojnovic's um, second novel, uh, Yugoslavia My Fatherland, which was widely reviewed and, and very well thought of and it still sells five years later which is a great accolade and so when Bellatrina the uh, Slovenian publisher asked me if I wanted to do a second I was quite keen on that. Goran is um, a very well-known writer in Slovenia but also in the region of former Yugoslavia which is I'm sure Olivia will back me up here quite unusual for a Slovenian writer because Slovenia being the smallest republic and speaking a different language tended to get let out, you know, left out of the kind of Serbo-Croat community. So it really is um, amazing that he's managed to break through that and all his books immediately get translated into Serbian integration and he's really very well thought of in the region. So it was obviously an honour to have a second book for him on our list. Thank you, Susan. Um, and I'm also really pleased to introduce Olivia, who's the translator of this book. Um, Hi Olivia, do you want to just quickly say hi and also maybe tell us a little bit about um, how you got involved in translating the fig tree in the first place? I know you allude to this in your translator's note, if you could tell us a story. Sure, hi everyone, thanks so much for, for coming, I've been looking forward to this for ages. Um, so yeah, I, I first read the fig tree just as, as a reader and I suppose it's worth saying that I I sort of when I say grew up, I mean in the Slovene language sense, like the, one of the first things I ever encountered in Slovene in terms of reading fiction was Goran's first novel. And so Goran's writing has been with me throughout every stage of, of my journey with Slovene language. And ironically, the first book of his was, I couldn't read it when I first picked it up because it's written in the dialect of uh, an urban area of Ljubljana where there are lots of former Yugoslav kind of first or second generation um, migrant families um, which speak a kind of a mixed 
mixture of Slovene and Serbian, Bosnian and Croatian. And so his first novel is it's a 15 year old narrator that writes in this very, very lively slang, which is a mixture of languages. So for a learner of Slovene, it's, it's kind of impossible. But I stuck, I stuck with it. And um, yeah, if, if you'd have told that kind of 22 year old Olivia that one day she'd be translating one of Goran's novels, I think she would have been pretty excited. Um, and yeah, I was lucky that I'd had, a, I'd done a couple of projects before. Um, I'd done one novel um, in, in conjunction with this bilateral project that Susie mentioned between Bellatrina and Eastros. I do quite a lot of sample translations for Bellatrina as well. And uh, they knew that I was a big fan of Goran's writing. They knew that I loved Figa, the fig tree. And so I was very lucky that they approached me and when they said they were going to apply for funding. And, and yeah, I said, I, I would love to do it if we could find a way of, of funding it. So yeah, here we are. Um, so what was the connection with the um, British Centre for Literary Translation and the, the summer school? Um, was that after so, you started translating it? Yes, yeah, the, the contract was in place then and um, when I was originally booked or asked to do the summer school, um, I would, I should have finished the translation. It was going to be the summer, the summer, summer school was going to come at the end of the project, but um, the, fig, the publication of the fig tree was pushed back by about a year because I wasn't well. So that ended up meaning that we did the summer school when I'd only really just scratched the surface. Um, but that worked out, it worked out really well because it was just the most amazing kind of opportunity to really delve into a text with the kind of the opinions and the insights of others. And it was, it was like the best foundation you could ask for really for starting a book length translation. Yeah, it sounds really, really great. Like having that sort of collaborative um, translation work. I mean, that, I don't know if that's something that makes sense to people who aren't also, who aren't translators, but like that translating together can, can be such a, like fascinating way to to start on a text. So I thought that was that was interesting to see that that you'd had that um, experience, I guess. Um, so I was wondering, like, before we kind of get into like the the book itself. I mean, this is also relevant to the book, obviously. But um, if you could, if you and Susan could tell us a little bit about um, how I mean, Susan's already started mentioned mentioned it a little bit. Like how Slovenia sits in relation to the rest of like former Yugoslavia. Um, both in terms of like the language, like how mutually sort of intelligible the language is compared to, you know, Bosnians. I don't, I don't really even know like the, the right term for, is it like BSC do you say, is that? I guess a lot of people say BCS, that is, that BCS. tends to be how it's known, especially in an academic context now. Like I have a friend who teaches BCS in, in the Slavonic Studies Department, um, but it, it's it also a generational out, thing. It leaves out Montenegrin. Yeah, but if you say BCSM, it sounds way too much like BDSM. So <laughs> BCMS, it should be, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it is Serbo-Croatian. It's like Indo-European. I don't see the problem. It's just that everybody from there hates you if you call it that. But I mean, for me, that's the language. So it's really speak about it in Serbo-Croatian, let's say, you can call it our language. And many, many people call it our language, right? But of course, you can't do that if you're a foreigner. You can't call it our language because it, 
isn't ours, if you see what it means, so it makes <laughs> yeah. it difficult. There was a statement signed by all the, a lot of the major writers and cultural figures in the region about three years ago on the fact that this is one language and one cultural pool, if it, as it were. And um, it was very interesting to see who signed that statement and who didn't, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. But in terms of like, um you know, who's, who speaks what in that region? Like how kind of separate is Slovene to those other lang languages? I mean, like you just said, like with, with his first novel that they speak this kind of mix, but like there's a bit of a mix in this novel as well. And I'm just wondering like how, how that really like functions, I suppose. So officially one of the, the key differences in Yugoslavia was that on paper, all languages were supposed to have equal status, but the reality was that in Slovenia, everybody could speak and understand Serbian Croatian, but the reverse wasn't true. Like if you went to Belgrade, you're unlikely to get away with speaking Slovene. Um, and the same would go for, for elsewhere in, in Yugoslavia. And th that was a tension that was at the, the root of a lot of things that there was in Slovenia among the kind of the public discourse and the political discourse was that Slovene as a language wasn't equal and this was something that was brought to the fore and, and used as a means of encouraging independence towards towards the end uh, like in the kind of late 80s um, this kind of public opinion surveys where people were asked do you think Slovene has an equal status um, and you can see over time how that that opinion becomes more and more negative it's really interesting that is really interesting. I think it's it's interesting sort of to ask as as you know sort of complete outsider to to that region and and so that was seemingly like a very complex um situation like especially when you're reading this book and it's sort of like um you know like Safa said this in Bosnian and then Vesna replied in Slovene and like sort of trying to understand how how that would work that like there's sort of these languages like coexisting like next to each other I suppose. In a basic level, a lot of it is mutually understandable, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not talking in a very complex way, it's it's easy to understand each other, even if you've like never studied Slovene, for example, or or vice versa. But obviously, not when it gets you couldn't listen to a lecture and understand everything. But in everyday speech, there are a lot of similarities. Lots. I have friends of my generation, Serbian friends, who don't. Like who have asked me to translate things from Slovene for them. So that Slovene is definitely, is definitely different. Yeah. And, and it's perceived as being different. But I, I think if you're a, if you have an understanding of Slavonic languages in general, um, I would say that it's probably easier for me to have a reading comprehension of Serbian, Croatian, Bosnian than it would be for um, a native speaker of those languages to learn Slovene, to have a reading comprehension of Slovene, perhaps. Okay, that's very interesting. I, I suppose the other, the other part... I've got attitude as well. I think it's also a lot to do with attitude. You know, I was like, going to say that too, yeah. I mean, you know, there's questions that I don't understand a word of Slovene. Well, I'm sorry, that cannot be possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I yeah. this, this comes up every time, you know, we feature an Estros book and it kind of has to be... I suppose it has to be like mentioned, doesn't it? Because it always forms part of, of, of the book itself and like the experience that is being 
you know, represented. But um, it's like when, when Celia Hawksworth was talking about it and she'd say, oh, well, a Serbian and a Bosnian would say they don't speak the same language. But I would say it's the same. <laughs> like, it, sound, it seems like it, it does depend a lot on, on who you ask, maybe. Um, no, but what I was going to say, oh, no, you go, Susan. No, I was just going to say, in fact, anyway, what we call our language is anyway political, right? It's always political. If America decided to call, say that they spoke American, what the hell are we going to say? I mean, you know, like they speak American and that's the end of the story, right? So yeah. it's a political decision based on, you know, national interests. So. My experience is that in, in practice, when I am there, when I'm in Slovenia or even when I've been in Sarajevo, for example, it's the actual act of speaking is a lot less political than actually talking about the languages and naming the languages itself. So, mm. yeah. Well, um, and it's, well, that's one of the things I love to hear Goran talk about is how his um, multilingualism kind of influences his writing, and and he does have this really unique insight, which I think comes across in his writing, and that he has he has grown up with with both those languages and and all the kind of history that that entails and and he does have a really unique perspective that he can share mm. well i i thought that was what was so interesting about this book is that you know you have characters on both sides of of that um like divide if you want to if, if divide is even the right word um but what, what i was going to say was you know an, another thing like when you're trying to as as again as an outsider like work is sold out is how um like these th these are all sort of um different distinctions but at before oh, sorry i'm not phrasing this well at all like obviously this book goes covers a lot of history and so there are sort of borders that are referenced and then they actually sort of become real at like a certain historical point obviously but before that point like you know when you're talking about like when um Vesna and Safa if i'm pronouncing this right do correct me if i'm not um <laughs> like i sort of younger it's like before those before obviously but while Yugoslavia is still is still whole um and yet there this is all still I don't know like a like a sticking point in many ways and like I, that shouldn't be surprising obviously but I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say with this I'm sorry I think Safet is a really interesting character and I think that one of the things that Goran is trying to do with the character of Safet is dispel any kind of myth of stereotypes about Bosnians. He's playing with that idea. And, and there, is, there is, of course, a lot of, I, I hate the word banter, but it's kind of what it is that before there was a lot of jokes about the different nationalities. And, and we see that in the way that, that Dane and Safet mock each other and play on these things. But you're right, there is a point when that all of a sudden becomes very, very sensitive. There's a lot more at stake and it's no longer just kind of friendly, poking fun. It gets really, really personal because people, people, people's identities and lives were at stake. Um, when Dane is kind of joking about um, being, uh, joking about Safet being Bosnian and then later talking about Slovene independence, what is what is doing in Safet's eyes is is saying that Safet's country, as he sees it, shouldn't exist anymore. And so Safet's entire identity and world, as he has known it, is is being is being threatened and questioned. But Safet's interesting because of his 
knowledge of Slovene language and Slovene culture. He's not just this kind of this this Bosnian guy that doesn't really understand anything. He's not the stereotype that some people make him out to be. And there are little hints in the book that show just how how learned and how interesting Safa is. And that's what I really, really loved about him. It's all these little hints that show that he was also willing to show his son that there was that he was also a proud Slovene, that there was kind of equal interest from both from both linguistic sides. Yeah, yeah. I thought Zafet was a very interesting character, like very maybe the most mysterious one in, in the book, I'm not sure. Um, but like with so so kind of like you know explored this whole question of languages um which you know is partly because it's it's good to have some explanation about it but uh, getting to the real point which is like what was that like to translate when you have all these different things going on people speaking different languages um obviously you make certain decisions about how how you deal with that and you know some of it is left in, in the original so could you tell us a bit about what that was like and how you came to the decisions that you came to i suppose yeah i guess on the one hand i'd say it maybe wasn't quite as difficult as you might think. Like the it is Safet that speaks Bosnian for the most part. And I don't does he always speak Bosnian? I can't remember. I think I think for the main part he does, but with context and when you can understand that, it kind of you get into a flow. It was tricky and I had to do a lot more research and a lot more consulting with native speakers as far as Safet was concerned, especially with some of his like kind of sayings and refrains, you know, like to, to really make sure that I got that tone. Um, and Goran was really helpful with that. But the, the question of how I was going to deal with Safet's Nashki was I suppose one of the first things I had to really sit down and think about and I actually went to a workshop I think before I knew that I'd got pen funding to even do it I think it was a, it was a translation workshop with Roz Schwartz where everybody could take a paragraph of something that they were they were working on and I'd done a draft like a, of a chapter for the pen application and people were saying, well, you could put maybe experiment with putting the Nashki in italics. And we were talking about different things that I could do. But of course, as I'm sure many of you will have noticed, italics have another important function in the novel. And it became clear that that was just going to be way too confusing for me to keep um, all of Safet's language and dialogue in italics. So I just I had to accept that an element of that visible, tangible multilingualism would be lost and I would have to do my best to take every viable opportunity to show little hints of it to remind the reader that, that Safet does speak another language and he does coexist with, with these characters in another, in another language. So it was, it was definitely tricky, it required some thought, but also there, there is also you are restricted with what you can do there's only so much i could do so in some ways just had to do it mm. uh, but there's um is it i think alex alexander as well um sometimes speaks is it croatian i'm assuming um Serbo croatian yeah 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 in a way sometimes those elements were trickier because it was 
it was really significant when he started to speak Serbo-Croatian. Um, some of the sections with, with Jana in particular, because he and Jana spoke Slovene all their lives. Um, but when Jana no longer really recognizes or responds to Alexander, he, you know, I think it kind of states this quite plainly in the, in the novel, doesn't it? That he just says there's no point talking the language that they always used to speak. And it, it's so like, it really gets you. Um, and I tried to avoid using footnotes with this book because I found it to be such like an immersive reading experience. I really wanted people to have that experience too, but with some of those, some of those bits of Alexander's speech it had to be, it had to be known, it had to be visible that, that he was speaking, that he chose to speak a different language at certain points. Yeah, I guess there was there couldn't be one consistent approach throughout because it really varied and and often some of the instances where it says or like he said in Bosnian or he said in Serbian that's that's not actually me there are a lot of points where it actually says that in the Slovene and I thought that would be interesting because I imagine that people would just think that was me but actually it does quite quite a few points in the text spell out what languages people are speaking. No, that is really interesting because I think um, it would, I mean, I, I suppose your assumptions would depend on sort of how much you know about the whole thing that we've just spent ages talking about, I guess, as to whether it would be obvious if someone was speaking a different language or if, if, if it would be actually like in the text as that, as that other language or if it was just signalled like how you, how you would signal it. Um, yeah. But it's interesting that you would like have, a, obviously have a different approach to the same like phenomenon depending on the context and the way it's being used yeah i think that's that's a lot to do with the fact that with safa it's a consistent use of another language whereas for alexander it has a very specific function that just pops up now and again and so not only is it important to signal that and to show that it's also it, it's i had the option to do that whereas i wouldn't have been able to provide footnotes all the time for safa yeah of course that would have been horrible to read so <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah that would have been a lot to work through i suppose um no i think i think um footnotes is like something that tr like translators always end up having like big debates about like whether it, like whether you should use them how you should use them but I, I think um in in your translation it was really um really effective because it does like highlight the um i don't know that it's that it's something something strange, something different that, that is happening. I'm, I'm kind of pro footnotes in many ways, but it just completely depends on, on the type of text that you're translating and, and, and the function of the text. And I think, as I said in my translator's note, that the thing that I really tried to let guide me throughout was that I just had loved getting lost in this narrative as a reader. And I, sometimes I just had to let that be the guiding principle and occasionally if that meant that some of the multilingualism was wasn't visible in in my translation then that was a sacrifice I had to make mm. yeah I mean I think as the editor you you also you I never I almost never put footnotes in the novels unless they're very self-referential novels which have footnotes in the beginning I try to avoid them at all costs because you know you do you break the narrative you break the spell by doing that and so even if that sometimes means 
taking out cultural references which are just too specific and will be lost on an English speaking audience, then you know that it, it has to happen, I think. Hmm. So, I wanted to also talk about like um, the, the structure of this novel, like the way it's sort of um, like the the um, what's what's the word the chronology of it sort of goes back back and forth so much and you skip from one time to another um one little bit of one thread and then back to a, a different one and it sort of gets revealed gradually um i mean there's something i really enjoyed about it it definitely kept me very gripped like one, wanting to know like what happens with the various different stories um, and all the things that are referred to suddenly come come revealed um so I was I a pretty general question about that, like how how did you sort of approach that, like in in terms of your, your translation and how you unraveled that yourself? Well, I suppose I had maybe unusually some translators. I had read this novel first. That doesn't always happen. Translators don't always have the time to do that. So I had an understanding of the novel's timeline and and structure beforehand. Having said that, it's still a very different thing to, to dive in translating. Um, I suppose the, the main challenge of the different timelines is just making sure that the voices remained consistent. And I mean, it was interesting to me, I, it didn't really pose a problem. I guess I just knew the book and I loved the book. But it was one of the things that I talked about with Susie a lot, wasn't yeah. it? There were some parts that the way that the dialogue is marked in italics for events that are recalled through Yadran's memory. Um, Susie thought at some point that was really confusing. And I didn't find it confusing, but it's really hard for me to have any objectivity because I've been so close to it and so closely involved. So it was good to have those discussions um, with Susie. Yeah, I think that was, the main, that was the main thing that we talked about, wasn't it? It was the main sticking point in the in the translation. Yeah. We had to get that right so that it was clear for the reader, yeah. Yeah, and in the end we decided that it would be worth mentioning in the translator's note for that reason. I didn't want to give any spoilers away, but I think it's also useful in explaining why I made certain decisions in terms of translating the Safet's language. Um, because it would maybe have seemed obvious to, to make some kind of visual marker had it not been for this issue of dialogue in italics being distinct from dialogue in speech marks in the active present. Yeah. Mm. Um, Goran had some interesting things to say about that. It's definitely a deliberate device and he um, mentioned several other authors that that use dialogue from different periods, often like changing at quite fast pace. Um, Mario Vargas Llosa, for instance, um, was, an, was an author that had been quite influential for him, I think, in terms of um, seeing how dialogue could be structured and how it can function. So it was, it was important for me to keep that because it's, it's key. Yeah, yeah. Because that was the thing, I mean, like I, I, I said this, you know, about that was my kind of my question about how it, it goes back from one thing to another but even within like one chapter you get so much um sort of jumping between memory and the present like in, in a way that can be quite disorienting even um 
like as a reader trying to to realize what is happening at the present moment and what is being recalled in that moment um mm -hmm. and I, I would say that happened in Slovene though when I read it in Slovene I think that's that is a feature of the book and for me I guess I would if I had to interpret it I would say it kind of mimics the the kind of the way that our minds can frantically run around and and jump back and forth in time and it's like memory is not a stable place um, and this narrative is not stable in any sense that it kind of goes in a continuous straight line so yeah yeah absolutely no I wasn't trying to suggest that you've done like a confusing challenge no, no, <laughs> but like it, but it is it is kind of yeah slightly dizzying sometimes the way it, the way it moves like that but I yeah I really like how you've characterized it um, I was curious to know how people would find it because like my partner has just started reading the novel and he said there are a lot of characters in this mm -hmm. I was like are there oh yeah I guess there are <laughs> so it's, it, it's really really interesting. there are some that are sort of like mentioned briefly and then like don't ever really come back like I feel like the opening you start off with this character who's completely irrelevant to the entire story and you expect that he's what's his name like Risto or something you think he's going to be like a character you just <laughs> I, I actually also found the opening a bit problematic it's true but there were I can definitely say that there were not as many characters as in Ferrante which is really quite confusing and I was glad that they put um, family lists at the beginning of the novel so you could go back and check <laughs> I did feel like it might have, I mean, like, it's not hard to keep track of in this novel. Like, I don't think it's hard to keep track of, but it would have been interesting to have, like, a visualisation of that family tree. Like the family tree, yeah. Oh, that you might have drawn, like, a fig tree, but with the... Oh, a that's a nice one, Maddie. In <laughs> fact, when we, when we did uh, Goran's first book, Yugoslavia and My Fatherland, which is much more about the war in Yugoslavia and the, the kind of evolution of how things broke apart through the story of um, one family kind of multicultural, I'm going to say, you know, with people from different parts of the former Republic. But um, we, the first print one we went, and then the second one, we put a map in the front because we were like, I think we really, people have really found it difficult to see where the borders are and what's happening and yeah. where he's going, where he's traveling in the book. So if we do a reprint, we can put a fig tree, a family fig tree. <laughs> That's a really nice idea. Yeah. 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 How'd you like it? <laughs> um, I, I think I'll maybe just ask one more question before we go to the breakout rooms because I just looked at the time and been like, wow, it's getting, getting on. So um, I just wanted to ask what your relationship with Goran was like when you were translating because like you mentioned obviously that you did the, the summer school together. Am I right in saying that? Um, yeah, he, he, was a, he was a guest. He came to join us um, every day for the week. He would kind of join us in the morning yeah, and, and we would ask him lots of questions and he tells very entertaining stories. So, yeah, well, it was like a good collaboration, definitely. Sounds a bit daunting to have the, the author right there while you're all translating his work. I guess that really depends on the author. I, I don't think it's daunting to have Goran in the room because he's so friendly and so enthusiastic. Some, some authors are just very easy to work with and He's super professional and yeah he's he's kind of exactly what you want as a translator really for somebody to be open and enthusiastic and and i had i had the advantage that we'd met before so when i how many years ago is this about seven years ago goran came 
to Nottingham University when I was studying for my master's um, because there was an exchange between the, the, the Slovene um, teachers at Nottingham and the University of Ljubljana and they would organise for authors to come over and we'd do literary evenings. So we were lucky to have Goran with us um, and he did some readings and students got to ask him questions and we as students did some translations of his work, kind of produced this little booklet, which I still got somewhere. It's like one of the first things I ever did. Um, so I, so I, we were kind of on friendly terms anyway. Oh, that's nice. So that's yeah. Great, but you had like an, an, an easy, like nice relationship. Yeah, he's, he's great to work with and that made it a lot easier to just to send, to send questions and, and to not feel too intimidated. It still is intimidating, don't get me wrong, like you always feel like, oh, is this person going to think I'm stupid for asking this question? And I think I have a tendency to want to know every single little thing, so I had to really kind of... Yeah, tell the story about the phrase that you, you asked all your colleagues about, and was it, that's a wonderful story, and then how you finally had to ask Goran and what he said. You told it at the Slovene which, Embassy. Which which one? What did I say? It was there was a there was a, a word or a phrase that you just couldn't you didn't work out and you thought, how do I not know this word in Slovene? And you'd ask various Slovenian colleagues, shall I'm gonna have to tell it if you don't understand, if you don't remember. And then finally, finally you asked Goran and he said, this Oh no. From from Yugoslavia. Was it? I don't know. Well, I think so because I, I actually wrote my master's dissertation on an aspect of Goran's second novel. Um, I, didn't, I didn't translate it, I was, I was way too early on, I think, to take on a novel at that point, but I was, I was keen. And um, I translated an excerpt from his second novel and yeah, just could not find this word anywhere. Like it wasn't anywhere online. I put out like messages on Facebook and on Twitter no Slovenes that I knew knew what this word was. Finally, I plucked up the courage to email Goran, and he emailed back and was like, "Oh yeah, sorry, that's a typo." <laughs> so this kind of like rare type of vegetable that I'd been searching for on the internet for for weeks on end was in fact just a courgette. But Goran thought he was trying to say zucchini, but it came out as like zigant or something, and nobody knew what zigant was. Um, so yeah wonderful, wonderful. Oh, the, the perils of translation <laughs> um okay um i'm gonna have a quick look in the chat and see if there's any questions and then um i think there's maybe a couple um, yeah i think yeah so i think the one that paul asks is quite interesting so he says that there's one point when anya uses like um a bit of british slang does out for anything um and he was wondering what aspect of Slovene speech was attended that was intended to get across. Interesting. I can't picture that exact line. I think it might so be I, when he's drunk. I think it's yeah. drunk and belligerent. Yeah. Um so she speaks in quite heavy Ljubljana slang to Yadran. And I suppose it's quite a contrast because I mean she's a teenager, right? This is why she's she's speaking in that kind of in, in just in the way that teenagers do um, but the contrast is that I suppose that her parents are kind of seen as this well-to-do Slovene family and then when she's when she's out and she's talking to Yadran she's, she's really not speaking standard language at all 
and that was yeah that was really difficult to translate if she says out that's probably my yorkshireness coming out <laughs> but yeah i think there were just some times where I, I tried to use abbreviations and allude to non-standard language but it, it's super difficult you can't recreate exactly what what she's doing yeah, yeah. without it sounding just really comedy and <laughs> you know you don't want it you don't want it to be silly yeah yeah um, so this is the last question I'm going to take quickly. If there are more, then maybe you can ask them afterwards. Um, but Martin says, can you clarify whether Istria is just a geographic area or does it also have a cultural identity overlapping with the different nations? Is that a question with a really long answer, perhaps? Well, see, Istria is, um, you know, a peninsula, which is partly very small pit in, in Slovenia and then the majority of it in Croatia, as it now stands. Um, but I would say that even though there were only about 200,000 people who live there, um, they do have their own dialect, which is a mixture of Slovene, Croatian and Italian. So they will take Italian words and they will decline them like their Croatian words. So it can be very confusing <laughs> for somebody who learned only Croatian, let's say. And they also have a habit of talking about the Croatians, you see, and which, of course, you always say to them, yeah, but hang on, aren't you Croatians? And they say, <laughs> no, 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 we are Istrians. So I would think that they would feel that they had, maybe it's like the Cornish or something, that they do have a, a special culture and they do have this slang, but they all speak, of course, standard Croatian as well, and they can do that. But certainly in my experience, whenever a lot of alcohol was consumed i actually lost all comprehension because they just went into this dialect i just couldn't understand anymore <laughs> i visited some of the towns that are featured in the fig tree i, I went to momyan last autumn autumn 2000 and yeah 19 um and there's one particular moment we were in a graveyard just up the road from the village of momyan and that, that was fascinating in itself looking at the language on on the headstones but there was there was a woman and what i presume to be her grandson with her and i really couldn't understand mm. what they were saying and i was like is that italian no it's croatian no it's italian and it was it was really really fascinating and i was with a slovene friend and they were like yeah no i don't understand either yeah. it's very it's very particular dialect yeah, yeah it was beautiful Oh, that's really interesting. They have their own music, of course. They have poetry, even in Istrian dialect. Mm. So it is a living language, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking that one, Martin, because that was an interesting answer. Um, I think, yeah, I think we're going to go into the breakout rooms now. Um, as usual, 20 minutes, um, have a nice discussion, and uh, we'll see you afterwards. So, yeah, have a good time. had an interesting discussion um you know how it goes uh if you want to tell us tell us what you think tell us share your thoughts then please just say so in the chat and i'll call on you and also you know if you have more questions um for for olivia or for susie then you can ask them so caitlin's gonna kick us off hi caitlin how are you 
Hello, I'm good. How are you? All right. <laughs> Did you have a nice discussion? We had a lovely discussion, um, and I have to like preface everything I'm about to say with, um, I am loving the book, but I'm only this far through. Um, so <laughs> really enjoyed it. Really wanted to be here to listen to the discussion. Um, but this week was one of those weeks. Um, but I, so I'm just relaying back um, what. Uh, wiser people than me said in our group um, and uh, really positive thought this was one of the best books we've read so far at book club um, in particular when um, asked about like relating sort of to one of the couples um, Alexander and Jana were definitely the couple that um, both of the other people in my group really related to um, and uh, they weren't sure whether that was sort of um, whether that was the impact of um their sort of lack of communication and like really relating to how they drift apart um or if it was sort of age similarities like being making it um making them really relatable um we had a really interesting chat about whether um because it is so autobiographical and um uh martin had really really enjoyed the interview you Olivia you did with um uh, Goran and he said that was like so insightful and wonderful and um obviously it's really in some ways autobiographical so can't in so many ways be separated from the location that it's um told in and the stories that it's telling but also that there is this universality to conflict stories and that any place where borders have been drawn that didn't reflect the people who lived in the borders and any place where um conflict of any kind that they there are these universal truths and feelings and emotions and um yeah we just wanted to say thank you very much and um, we really enjoyed this book well thank you caitlin um i hope you enjoy the rest of it um because that's that was some really like glowing reviews people saying it's their favorite book from the book club so um I have to say I really, really enjoyed this one myself, so I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Um, okay, who wants to go next? I think Sam. If Sam's ready, maybe not. Ready. Sorry, I, I, could make, I could not unmute it, sorry. I know, it's, it's the faff, isn't it? I'm always like, are they there? Are they just working? <laughs> I'm here. Hello, Sam, nice to see your face. <laughs> Thank you for the books, Susan, they came today. You're very welcome. <laughs> Um, yeah, we all really enjoyed this book. Um, I really loved it. I knew I was going to because I loved Yugoslavia, my fatherland as well. So thank you for that. Um, we actually we talked quite a bit before getting on the questions. And the main question we talked about was actually the last question about the whether you could tell the same story against a different historical landscape and how it would change. And I think we came at it from quite different perspectives because I've studied former Yugoslavia, Serb and Croatian. And to me, it felt very, my answer was sort of, no, it has to stay in this context. This is where it belongs. Everything is so related to the region, the history, the languages, and the break with Yugoslavia being the catalyst for what happens. Whereas everybody else in the group actually had really interesting points, maybe completely changed my mind about how I was thinking. Um, Nazarene said, I thought it was really interesting that she could see a similar story being told for example, with three generations in Iran. It wouldn't be the same, but it would have some resemblance. Um, and we talked about countries that have been separated, divide, be joined and set divided. Like we said, for example, Pakistan and India, you might have some kind of similar story there. And then we also talked about other different geographies 
where people don't feel welcome in their own homes, talking about current immigrant context in Europe and the USA and the multiculturalism there, multicultural relationships and how difficult that can be for, for people feeling an, an other in what is your own country. That was the main thing we talked about. I think basically we, we agreed on that, that we felt you could effectively tell the same story, but that the motivations that the narrator would ascribe to his relatives might be different in, the, in different contexts. Um, the other thing we talked about that I really like the point of um, talking about how I think Nazreen had read another author talking about magical realism being an effective way to convey trauma. And we talked about how fictionalization is also similarly that um, the war generating trauma in these people's lives. And for Yadran, the fictionalization being both an effective narrative technique, but also potentially a way of coping. That was our discussion. Yeah, we all really enjoyed the book. So thank you. Thanks so much, Sam. Yeah, I think that's so really yeah really really interesting points um i'd be i'd be interested to see like what, what other people feel about that question about whether it could have could have taken place somewhere else or i think it's maybe one to it's interesting to consider alongside the idea of the fictionalization of it and how much of it is sort of yadran's own story that he's telling as opposed to what what might have you know actually happened um but yeah really 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 interesting points thank you um, so I think, uh, Chris, would you like to go next? Hello. Hi. Yeah, we, we had a, we had a really lively group. Um, so it made it fairly easy for me as a host. So I do thank the group members. Um, the three generations of couples, we had a bit of a split there. Um, at least one of us thought that, uh, Vesna and Safet, uh, were interesting, uh, particularly the Safet element where he was quite enigmatic and you couldn't always put your finger on what was happening or even quite why he'd gone back to Bosnia. Um, but on this occasion, majority went for Alexander and Jana, the relationship of the elderly generation, in part because uh, they had a long history and we could see how it all raveled and unraveled. And there seemed to be a lot of unspoken things between them. Uh, blanks where they hadn't opened up to each other but I had a feeling that Alexander um, tried to say he tried to do his best didn't always work out he got things wrong on some occasions um, but he started to want to build a utopia at uh, Bomyam and almost create walls around that cottage uh, to keep out the insanity of the world um, but there were a good number of examples of where he was distraught uh, and unhappy. For example, he didn't like taking the building uh, which had all the Italian clothes and the kitchen utensils, etc. He just thought that was wrong and I thought that was lovely. Um, how the women in the book portrayed, uh, we actually as well thought that the men have their absences and they're all scared of Course. but I think every one of us thought that the women actually were quite strong um, although they had been wounded by the men leaving uh, and you could observe through the generations different reactions and we shouldn't forget that the, uh, the tables were turned when Anya actually left um, so we thought that was quite interesting um, 
As regards uh, the Bosnian war remaining in the background and whether we would have liked to have known more, I think the general consensus was that the book was good as it was. And we felt that if there had been more detail about the war, then it would have been a different book entirely, I think. Um, so we were, we were more than happy with as it was. And as it was, it had an air of menace. Uh, and we thought some things terrible were going to happen at times, for example, to Safed. We heard gunshots popping off occasionally. Um, the cafe fight where Safed could have got in big trouble. Um, the three soldiers at Safed's house. Um, and of course, with Safed going back to Bosnia, we really thought something terribly gruesome was going to happen. Um, as regards uh, Safed Vesna, Yadra, Alexander, and Yana, all delving into the memories. We thought this was a central point of the book uh, about constructing narratives. Uh, a lot of it is Yadrin's surmising of what's happened. Uh, and there seem to be two streams of events, uh, two streams, events and Yadran surmising events as well. Uh, and there's a chain of thought about how do we deal with our history, memories and thoughts. Um, so all in all, we thought, we thought that was quite complex, actually. Um, could this story be told elsewhere? We thought, we thought definitely so. In fact, we thought the whole of the 20th century, um, particularly in Eastern and Middle Europe, um, you, you could certainly have con uh, constructed a similar novel. And of course, we all knew that the Balkans was a flashpoint and had been for many years. But, but there are other uh, areas, obviously, uh, within middle and western europe that were very similar really um so yeah i i often i actually thought to myself earlier on today whether you could have had the story in the middle of africa say the congo or whatever and the borders around and, and you would have had perhaps slightly different tribal religious cultural elements but you, you could put together a similar sort of story about relationships and loss and um disintegration yeah so i hope i hope that was a reasonable attempt <laughs> yeah thank you so much chris no it's um very comprehensive i think that last question is is really interesting um because i feel like when i when i was thinking about it it felt to me like perhaps even like you could say oh you can move it to somewhere else that had a similar conflict or similar issues with borders i feel like a lot of the events that really are the you know cataclysmic ones are things that aren't necessarily to do with that things like you know having a stroke or leaving you could leave for some other reason it wouldn't have to be because you have had your citizenship erased or because your boss has forced you to go to Egypt like that a lot of it is sort of about freedom and trying to trying to navigate freedom in a, in a relationship and failing to or then having the, the sort of generational baggage fall upon you and I felt like that could I feel like that could happen somewhere where the the conflict like that external conflict perhaps wasn't present but that's just my thoughts and I, I should not I should let you guys share your thoughts instead so um Paul would you like to go next hi there yeah uh well a lot of the same things as Chris was saying came up in ours we only got uh, as far as the first three questions we asked a question that wasn't on on the three which the basic question did we enjoy the book and and there were the five of us in the group and four of us did so that's an 80 percent approval rating from our group four out of five stars on amazon um uh 
but um, so we didn't come to any consensuses, but uh, I'll sort of say some of the things that came out of the discussion. Um, which of the couples did we feel closest to? I think there was, none of us felt terribly close to any of them. And there's no one particular one um, that, that we felt closest to. Although for some, some of us, because of family circumstance, we, we identified with one or the other of them. Um, how are the women portrayed? Do we think they're defined by the absences of their men folk? We didn't think they were. They're, they're clearly the, the, the male parts of each generation um, are more dominant in terms of the story, and that's what the author is trying to bring out. But we didn't, and, and we didn't think that they were um, dominated in the story by their their men folk. Vesna was the most bitter. Someone said. Um, they're, they're, all the women are sort of sh sh fairly shadowy and less clearly defined, um, but it's not because of the absences of the men. They're not defined by the absences of the, of the men. Um, there was one that came up, uh, this question, there, there was one woman that we thought there was going to be a lot more focus on, and that was Esther. Um, and I think we were all thinking, what happened to her? What was her story? I, 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 we thought that that was going to be what the book was about, finding out her backstory and how it fitted in, but she's absent from almost entirely the rest of the book. So it would have been nice to know more about her. He dies. Third... Oh, does she? Well, I mean, she, I know we all die in the end. When, when does I she know, die? but it does, it does say that at the start. I completely, um, I completely sympathise with this point that you think the book is going in one direction with this setup story and in the end that the way that it impacts the eventual narrative is is quite minimal but um yeah it's it's kind of basically there as i interpret it to explain the impact that she had on alexander's life so because of the the paranoia and the way that she lived her life and the things that she had to do to get through that was all an influence on alexander and influenced the way that he behaved but she 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 drops dead outside of her apartment door and alexander is still young why she was on the run i suppose is what is what we were wondering mm -hmm. and that had led her to go to change her name and go from place to place uh then third one uh the war remains in the background um we again we had different opinions on that some of us who know a little bit about the war didn't didn't feel that we needed to know more about it others that have got uh, had less knowledge of the recent history of this area would have appreciated a bit more we all found some of us who know the area relatively well and those who don't we all found we were going to google maps to look up certain places and see where they fitted in and where the bus routes went and the and the car journeys and so on um we did like um yeah, we liked the, the, the Safet story and his return to his homeland. Um, at that point, we, 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 we thought we, would have, uh, we were interested in finding out more about his story from the point where he meet, makes this tentative to re return to Bosnia. Uh, and he's a rather pathetic character when uh, Yadran sees him when he's young, to him turning up again at, at the funeral, where he seems to have changed a little bit. But we don't know anything about what's happened to him in the meantime, and, and um, some of us would have liked to know a little bit more about that. Um, and that's as, about as far as we got, but some words we described intriguing, intricate, immersive. This is about the book itself, so 
um, does a good job of, of um, showing the emotional interior of some very poetic parts of the book with some of the comments. So we enjoyed it. Mm. Thank you, Paul, for, for sharing that. Um, yeah, lots of lots of interesting interesting points and interrogating those those questions quite thoroughly. Um, yeah, I, I feel like a, yeah, the whole thing about Esther is 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 interesting. I'd quite almost forgotten about her, but she is quite um, sort of heavily present in the start, I suppose. But I feel like it sets up that that um, idea of the the things recurring across the generations. Um, like from the very beginning so um yeah the idea of fear and yeah. and running away and the past catching up with you mm. kind of, yeah it talks about when she first saw the the nazis um marching into belgrade and that's the reason that she flees um but yeah you're right there, there is very little detail about that it's interesting goran has said retrospectively that there are some threads where he thought that he'd kind of that, that story had been told and then with with discussing the book with distance with other people he has thought oh, maybe i should have said a bit more about this person so he's he's obviously reflected on that too yeah I, like, I i felt like there were things that that there were other things that weren't fully like explored like the conflict between vesna and maya like that's kind of it's kind of explained like where that comes from but there's I think at some point it says like it's the first time they've seen each other in seven years or something when the grandfather dies. And it's obviously been longer than that since Safa disappeared. So it's like, what, you know, where did that originate from? I'm just pointing out there were other other threads that, yeah, could, could have been gone into even further. But I feel like that that maybe is sort of the point where, like at the end, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a, bit of a spoiler, but it's sort of like, oh Yadran you've constructed this whole nice thing that fits together and it's not actually like that it doesn't all neatly go from one one generation to another in the same way um so again I'm just <laughs> just giving my own thoughts about this but perhaps that's that's where that comes in I don't know um okay um who, who wanted to go next is there anyone left um Carol maybe if you still have things to say I'm, I'm conscious that it's getting late I don't want to keep you all but um I also don't want to stop anyone from sharing their thoughts. So, Carol, I, I will be I will be brief. Um, <laughs> we actually uh, we did answer your questions, but we got diverted early on into a side lane about the political aspects of language and speaking different languages within families and how on earth you make that visible to a British audience that, for example, that doesn't have that in its experience at all. So we were talking about. Um, different um, dialects of Irish and sort of Welsh and things. Um, so we got diverted onto that track for a, a little while. It's, it would definitely feel like personally the, the translator, Olivia, made the right decisions about um, kind of losing some stuff in order to just make it an immersive experience because I just don't think you can make everything in that situation visible to, to a, an English-speaking monolingual audience. It's, I just don't think it'd be possible. Okay, so your questions. Um, the three generations of couples, clear uh, preference for Alexander and Jana from us, and that was partly based on this lovely mythical atmosphere that gets created 
when the grandfather has died and you get the description of the house and one of the members of the group mentioned the kind of open books relaxing on sofas and so it's this just this nice sort of magical mythical atmosphere that you, you get to know them through the the house really um and uh, also you see the whole uh, of their trajectory as well so maybe it's partly because of that um the second question we weren't really sure why you would ask about the women being defined by their absences because actually there are absences all over the shop in this book and um you could say it's kind of partly about absence in fact and it was one member said if uh if the question that this book asked was, does absence make the heart grow fonder? The answer might be no. But actually, one of the things that I noticed was um, that the absences are there, but they don't break the ties between the characters. For example, when Alexander's in Egypt um, is when he starts to realise how much he's missing Yana. And Yana is kind of coming out of herself and becoming more of an individual at the same time. So that and you know and and Safet disappears but he doesn't sort of um disappear from the mind or the life of his son so the 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 the, the characters remain tied together in spite of or with the absences uh, in, included in that so actually i think that's quite a, a nice sort of message of the book actually when i think about it Question three, um, Bosnian war in the background. Yes, we were happy, happy for it to remain in the background. And we also thought that maybe if, I mean, obviously he writes for um, native speakers and perhaps they are happy to have the Bosnian war in the background as well and to make the story about the characters and the experiences and the relationships. And um, the thing about memories, well, we only had one member of the group who had finished the book and we weren't allowing him to give us spoilers so we pass on that one <laughs> the end thanks thanks so much Thank you. and it's a great book really enjoyed it that's lovely to hear thanks so much everyone it's, I've, I've absolutely loved hearing what you've all thought i was saying to maddie before that you spend so so much time being really really close to the page and and like honing in on all the tiny details then um, it's great to have the opportunity to step back and, and discuss the book objectively because um, I haven't had the opportunity to do that with anyone yet so thank you. Yeah thank you thank you all so much for, for sharing your thoughts you know really fantastic discussion and thanks very very much to Olivia and uh, Susie for joining us this evening. Um, so yeah so we'll wrap it up there I and mean, time gets away with me in, in these in these meetings uh, it's been an hour and 40 minutes so I, I always feel like it needs need to be a bit tighter in case you all have other places to go but um, I never want to, to end it so <laughs> you have to worry about that at the moment I <laughs> know oh, maybe not no I'm always conscious that not everyone is in the UK you know not everyone is um... oh, right although it seems pretty global at the moment yeah maybe yeah. after Christmas we might We'll be let out to play so no i just mean like um you know we have we have readers in the in the us for example so it might be in the middle of their afternoon they might have other things to be doing um yes i was so. hoping that someone would feed back from the, the us please <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they they'll um they'll let you know what they think on twitter or, or whatever um, no, it's great to, it's great to hear readers 
opinioned finally that's excellent yeah well i hope you've all enjoyed it um and yeah i hope you guys can join us again in two weeks for the last one in our program but i'm gonna say not the last one ever because you know we'll, we'll we'll make this we'll make this work we'll we'll continue we'll live on um but yeah for the last one of the year the last one before we all go off for, for christmas and or winter holidays or whatever um is Tokyo Ueno Station, which is from Tilted Axis Press um, by you, Mary, and we're going to be joined by translator Morgan Giles. Um, it's just actually just won the National Book Awards in America for the best work of translated fiction. So um, for that reason, Tilted Axis have run out of physical copies, but you can still get an ebook uh, if you haven't got yours already. Um, so yeah, that's what we'll be reading next. Uh, so that'll be on the 10th of December. Um, and then that will be the last one. But um, yeah, I mean, I will, I will let you know what what happens, what we decide to do, um, whether that's some kind of crowdfunding thing or or what. But um, we'll work it out. And, I, and like I've said, we've got we've got a program ready for you, and it's a really good one. So um, hopefully, we'll be able to share it with you soon, and you'll still be you'll still have an appetite for this book club after after New Year, even with the you know all the promise of twenty twenty one being a new year, and this hopefully all you know eventually being over but I hope I hope you'll still want to, to join us for this so um yeah I'll keep you all updated of course um but in the meantime I hope you can join us again in two weeks and that you will have a lovely evening um so yeah see you next time bye everyone bye.